Well, thanks, Steve, and good morning, everybody. Um, Pastor Daniel and Leah and Kennedy and, and Caleb and Knox are enjoying the sunny shores of Hawaii this morning so for a week's vacation. So before we begin, I thought it would be nice to say hello to them in Hawaiian. So at the count of three, we're all going to yell aloha as loud as we can. So in case they're watching, they know that we miss them. So ready? One, two, three. Aloha! All right, Daniel, hopefully you heard that. Okay, so you ready for the Word of God? All right, this morning we're going to cover Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. And as we begin this section of Hebrews, it's important to remind ourselves of what is being dealt with in this book, because when we do that and go into the context, it's really going to make it jump alive to us um, in some amazing ways. And so what was going on was this. The, the early church was made up primarily of Jewish converts. After all, Jesus was Jewish. Uh, the 12 disciples were Jewish. The church started in Jerusalem, uh, which was the capital of Israel. Now, while everything in the Old Testament was designed to show the need for a Savior and to point to Jesus as that Savior, it was easy to miss that especially if you got caught, in the, caught up in the form of the Old Testament faith as opposed to the substance of it. Every sacrificial lamb was just a forerunner and temporary substitute for Jesus as the Lamb of God. Every high priest was a blurry, incomplete, and fallen picture of what Jesus would be as the great high priest. Every dietary rule, every religious ritual and every regulation was designed to set the people apart as special to God as being the ones that He had chosen to reveal Himself through to the world and to bring a Savior to the world. Even the temple itself was designed to show that God would meet with man, but that ultimately that would happen through the God-man, Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2.17, here is how Paul described all the trappings of Jewish religion. He said this, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Yet it was easy to get caught up in all of these things that were just the shadow, especially if as a culture you had been doing them for hundreds and hundreds of years. After all, they were familiar and they felt comfortable which made them really easy to keep on doing. So to turn from them and to embrace what these were all pointing to when it actually came in the person of Jesus was hard for some people. And it was especially difficult if there were others in your group, like your family, your neighbors, uh, your friends, maybe even your boss, your coworkers, your customers, your clients, who were still clinging to those shadows themselves because you might end up being ostracized, maybe even persecuted. So what was happening amongst the Jewish believers in the early church was this. Many were being tempted to go back to the old, familiar, and comfortable ways of Judaism, and therefore to deny Jesus. So God, being rich in mercy, gave them this letter that we have before us to show them why Jesus was what everything that came before him was all about, and that what they had in him was far superior to what they had before. And the purpose of the letter was to encourage them to stay faithful in Jesus and to keep them from turning back. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, that's all nice and interesting, but in the 21st century, how could that possibly be relevant to me today? I'm not a Jewish convert like they were. But wait a minute. Before each of us came to Christ, we were following something that took up a lot of our time, our energy, our love, and our devotion, which we had to turn away from in order to follow Jesus. Maybe it was a sinful habit. Maybe it was a different faith that perhaps we grew up in. Maybe it was just self and the pursuit of pleasure. And maybe you, from time to time, are feeling tempted to go back to your old ways. Anybody here ever struggled with that? I mean, am I the only one? Well, if you have, this book 
is for you. Or maybe you've come to Christ, and for some reason, this walking with Jesus stuff, yeah, it's just getting kind of old for you, and you've lost your interest in it. Or perhaps you're not excited about your faith anymore, like you used to be, and you sort of left your first love. If that's true, then this book is definitely for you. So let's read Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and see what God has in store for us there. Hebrews 5, 1, for every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your eternal, inerrant, inspired, all-sufficient word. Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be living and active in our midst, Lord, that he would take the words of your Scripture, open our hearts and our eyes and our minds so that we might understand them, Lord, and even more importantly, that we might apply them. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are our great high priest. May your spirit teach us more this morning about what that means, all for your glory, and it's in your name that we pray. Well, what I want to do to help us understand this section of Scripture is first give you some big picture observations that we see in here, and then we'll go back through it verse by verse and look very carefully at some of the very important points here. But from a big picture sense, an overall sense, this section of Scripture is continuing with a theme that started back in Hebrews 4.14 that Daniel covered last time of comparing and contrasting Jesus with what these people had before in the person and position of the high priest of the temple. Now, this position, as our text even alluded to at the end of verse 4, started with Aaron even before there was a temple. And it continued down through the Levitical line after Aaron to the time of Christ. Usually the position was actually passed on from father to son. Now, what were the duties of this position? This is kind of important to understand to make sense of all this. Number one, the high, great high priest, or the high priest, excuse me, was responsible for overseeing all that went on in the temple including the daily sacrifices. He was also responsible for interceding in prayer daily for the people. And most significantly, once a year, he had the task on Yom Kippur of going into what was called the holiest of the holies, the very center of the center of the temple, a place surrounded by the, the shrouds that were torn in two uh, when Jesus was on the cross. And it was a place where it was believed that once a year, the high priest could meet with God on behalf of the people and bring blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat in order to atone for the sins of the people for the past year. And they had such a healthy and high regard for the holiness of God and held God in such reverence that they were afraid that if there was any sin found in the high priest while he was in there doing that, that he might be struck dead. Now, this part of it isn't from Scripture, it's actually from rabbinical tradition, but what they would do, the other priests that served with him, because they didn't want to run in there and get the guy if he was killed, they would tie a rope around his legs so that if he happened to be struck dead while he was in there, they could just pull him right out without going into the presence of God themselves. Now, we don't know whether that ever actually happened, 
but it gives you a sense of this awesome reverence they had of God and how special it was to have this once-a-year meeting with this holy, holy God. We also have in this section an introduction to a man named Melchizedek. And while there's a little bit in these verses here, there's going to be much more about him in chapter 6 and a lot more in chapter 7. And we'll cover more of that in context when we get there, but we will cover some of it this morning as it relates to the 10 verses we're looking at. Another key part of what we're going to look at is found in verse 7, in the first six words. We have a great reminder there of the fact that God became man when it says, in the days of his flesh, because that tells us that in the person of Jesus, our ultimate high priest, he had to become human in order to do that, and so we will discuss some of the implications of that. One of those implications was, as verse 8 says, that Jesus had to suffer. And so we'll talk about that. Another is, as verse 9 says, that Jesus gives us an eternal salvation. So we'll look at that as well. And because of these things and many more that we're going to try to dig into this morning, the conclusion to these people caught up in, do I turn back to my old faith or not, has to be that Jesus is not just a better high priest than the one they had in the temple, but he is the best possible of all high priests. You know, when you go to Home Depot or Lowe's to buy some paint or a paintbrush or screwdrivers or wrenches or some sort of tool, they often have them laid apart and they'll have good. There's these ones and they're a certain price, right? Just give me relate to this. And then it'll have better and they're a little bit more expensive and then it'll have best, which is the most expensive one. Well, thinking of it that way, um, the big point here in these 10 verses is that some high priests might have been good, a very few might have been better, but there's only one who is the best, and that is Jesus. So the point is, don't just settle for good or better in a high priest when you can have the absolute best. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants his hearers to conclude. So let's look at verse 1 which said, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this verse tells us that the regular high priest was appointed from among men and that his job is to represent us or represent his people before God. And you see, that's basically what a priest does in any religion. A priest is basically an intermediary between God and man, and he represents God to the people, and he represents the people to God. Part of what a high priest has to do, as this verse indicates, is offer sacrifices and gifts to God, because God is holy, and man is sinful, and sin needs to be atoned for. But note that both the words sacrifice and gift here in verse 1 are in the plural form, not the singular form, because this is an ongoing, never-ending duty because people are always sinning. You see, the basic issue in any religious endeavor, whether it's Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, what have you, I can tell you because I've, I've been blessed to dialogue and talk in Hindu temples, Buddhist temples, and many different Muslim groups. The basic issue in any religion, including our own, is how does man get right with God? How does man get right with God? Because all religions recognize that whoever their God is, is, is holy, is better than they are, and whoever they are is less than God is, and somehow there's this gap that has to be crossed, or man will have no fellowship with God. All other faiths, except Christianity, say that there are plenty of things that you can do in order to cross that gap, like keep rules, observe rituals, give money, do acts of penance, etc., etc., etc. Many other faiths also tend to lower the position of God somewhat and elevate the position of man in order to make it seem possible that you actually can bridge that gap on your own by your good works. 
Only the faith of the Bible leaves the position of God at absolute holiness and the position of man at total depravity and says that there is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. So the conclusion from verse 1 is that we have a high priest who has done it all for us. He does not have to keep offering gifts and sacrifices to God on our behalf. So whereas salvation through a human priest is an ongoing, never-ending process where you never really know if enough has been done, the good news is that God in the person and work of Jesus Christ has done it all for you. You see, salvation through Jesus is a finished work. It was completed at the cross, and God accepted it, and not only that, but He gave us proof that He accepted it by resurrecting Jesus from the dead. But salvation through religion, through rituals, through good works, and the ongoing sacrifices of a high priest is a never-ending task where you are never sure if enough has been done to make you right with God. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 now. These say, he, referring to this high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So here we see in these verses that because a human high priest is also fallen, just like the rest of us, the good thing is, well, at least he can understand our struggles with sin and temptation. But not only that, he has to offer sacrifices, and again, it's plural here, for himself before he can ever offer any sacrifices for us. And you see, the Old Testament in Mosaic Law actually laid out a detailed set of sacrifices and purification rituals that any priest offering any sacrifice had to go through before he could do anything in the temple. But not Jesus. Search the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not once will you ever see Jesus offer a sacrifice for himself even before he went into the temple, whether it was to read from the Isaiah scrolls or to go in and overturn the, the tables of the money changers, he never offered a sacrifice for himself. When he went to the cross to die for our sins, he doesn't offer any sacrifice for himself before that. And you see, brothers and sisters, that was because although he was a human being just like us, he was, as Hebrews 4.15 says, completely without sin. So let's go back up and look at Hebrews 4.15 for a second that Daniel taught on last time because it's very important to see the transition from this to what we're looking at today. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you see, as Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus could still sympathize with our struggles with sin and temptation, but His struggle was victorious because He didn't sin. So He has the ability to give us victory over sin too, unlike any human high priest could ever do. Now, sometimes people respond to what Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted like we are, yet did not sin, they respond like this by saying, well, well, of course Jesus could make it through the temptation without sin. I mean, He was God. Come on, I'm not God. It was no big deal for Him whatsoever. So how can He really understand what I'm struggling with? But here's the thing. The struggle Jesus had with temptation was actually far greater than ours. And let me explain why. This is not what God wants us to do when we are tempted, but what is the simplest way to get rid of the temptation? Give in to it, right? It doesn't keep it away for long. It comes back, but we can always give in as human beings. It's not what God wants us to do, but it will relieve the temptation for a time. But you see, Jesus 
did not have that option because he couldn't sin, because that would have aborted his entire mission to come save us from our sins, because he had to be a perfect, without blemish, sacrifice in order to take on our sins and die in our behalf. So he had no way out. So the temptation for him was far, far greater and far harder to endure than it ever will be for us. And so, of course, he can understand what we are going through. So the conclusion from verses 2 and 3 then is that instead of having a sinful fallen high priest who is still like you and me, prone to give in to temptation, sympathize with you, and help you through your temptations, wouldn't you rather have a perfectly holy and victorious one do that for you? And that's what we have in Jesus. All right, verse 4 tells us this. It says, and no one takes this honor of being high priest for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, this reminds us that although the high priest was a man, this was not a position to appoint yourself to. Rather, it was like anything else in the service of God, a calling from God, especially this one because it came with such heavy responsibilities. Now, let's um, look at verse 5. And from this point forward, by the way, the focus is going to be all on Jesus and the many ways that He is superior to any human high priest like we've just seen in the first four verses. So, verse 5 says this, So also, Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. So the first thing to see here is that although like a human high priest, Jesus did not elevate Himself to that position. In fact, He actually condescended to it because if you read uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 10, He left His position as God in heaven to come to earth to be our high priest. He was not chosen from amongst men like the high priest of the temple was, as verse 1 said that He was chosen from amongst men. Rather, Jesus was chosen from, get this, amongst the members of the triune God as a full and complete member of the Trinity. So instead of a high priest who comes from man to represent us before God, Jesus, you see, is a high priest who comes from God to represent us before God. Wouldn't you rather have that? That's the point. Because you see, Jesus having come from God and Jesus having been selected, as it says here, by God, absolutely guarantees that God accepts Him as an intermediary on our behalf. And it also absolutely guarantees that when He as our great high priest speaks to God on our behalf, guess what? God listens to Him and God believes Him and God does whatever He asks now, here's something else to consider about Jesus having come from God as a member of the triune God. That means that He is also Creator, as God is. And as Creator, that means that He made us, which means that unlike any human priest, He knows us intimately. You know, when someone comes to me or Daniel or Benkai for biblical counseling of some sort, which we love to do here to apply God's Word to, to all of our lives. But when that happens, we can only know about you what you choose to tell us. And even then, we can't fully understand you. We're, we're all humans. But Jesus knows everything about you without you even having to tell Him anything. And He fully understands you better than you can ever understand yourself. So he is a far better pastor and counselor to you than any human priest can ever be. No wonder Isaiah 9.6 calls him our wonderful counselor. And so again, the point is, isn't he so much better than any ordinary priest? Let's look at verse 6 as this continues. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, 
This verse tells us that it was God who appointed Jesus as priest, and not just appointed him as an ordinary priest, but as this verse says, as a priest forever. You see, unlike human priests, Jesus never dies. Instead, he lives forever to intercede for us with the Father as our mediator. So because Jesus is the best high priest, look at these things we've seen so far. Because he's the best high priest, because he came from God, because he was appointed by God, because he's accepted by and listened to by God, he understands us fully and is a priest forever. Wouldn't you rather have him than the temple high priest? Again, that's the point the author is trying to make. And then the writer of Hebrews gives us another reason in this verse for why Jesus is a far superior priest. And that is that unlike any human priest, he is a priest, as it says there, after the order of Melchizedek. So this is our first introduction to an Old Testament character who appears to be a very significant type of Christ. Scripture actually says very little about him. In fact, the book of Hebrews is the only place in the New Testament that he's mentioned at all, both here in in this verse and then in verse 10 of our section, and then again a little bit in chapter 6, and then a whole bunch actually in chapter 7. All that we know about Melchizedek comes from the Old Testament in just three little verses in the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis 14, 18 through 20. So let's read those now and see what this tells us about uh, Melchizedek and then how it applies to our section. So go back with me to Genesis 14, uh, 18 through 20, and let me give you the context here before you read this. Abraham, still called Abram actually at this time, hadn't taken the name Abraham yet, but Abram had just fought his first major battle with 380-some men. He had gone to retrieve Lot and his family who were being held captive by other kings in the area. And he's weary, and he comes into this valley to sit down and rest from his battle. And then this happens in verse 18 of Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, besides this, there's one other little place Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 110, verse 4, where it says exactly as our text back in Hebrews 5 says, that Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to jump ahead to what chapters 6 and 7 of Hebrews say about him. Uh, We'll cover that in context uh, in the coming weeks as as it comes up, as we go expositionally through Scripture. But we are going to look at some reasons that the writer of Hebrews is using Melchizedek to prove his point here that Jesus is superior to any regular or high priest that they had in the temple. So let's dive into Genesis 14, 18 through 20 a little bit to see what we can learn about Melchizedek from that that may relate to why Jesus is a superior high priest. So what are the relevant facts about Melchizedek that we can gather out of this little section we just read? Well, first of all, in addition to being a priest, as he's called here, we also see that he is a king. And the fact that he held both the position of priest and king will be looked at when we get to chapters 6 and 7, so stay tuned for that one. But in Hebrew, his name Melchizedek actually meant righteousness. So he is the king of righteousness. And so he was righteous. Now look at where he was from in Genesis 14, 18. It says he was from Salem, which in Hebrew meant shalom, which means peace. So he is also the king of peace. And Salem is widely regarded to be the same place as the city of Jerusalem. Next, look at what Melchizedek does here in Genesis. 
we can see in the earlier part, as I said, of chapter 14, right before this section, that Abraham has fought this big battle in order to free Lot and his family from captivity by these foreign kings. And in our verses then, Melchizedek comes and he gives Abraham rest. And he does so by bringing him something we're going to partake of in a few minutes, bread and wine. And then he blesses Abraham, and then Abraham worships him by giving him a tithe. So what all does this have to do with Jesus and why Jesus is a superior high priest? Let me walk us through a few. First of all, this has to do with Jesus because there are so many similarities we've just identified between Melchizedek and Jesus. For instance, notice this. Melchizedek did not come to Abraham in order to be served by Abraham, but rather he came so that he could serve Abraham. Likewise, Jesus did not come to be served, but rather to serve. Then think of what Melchizedek brought to Abraham, bread and wine. In Hebrew culture, bread pictured sustenance, as in the manna in the wilderness, and wine always represented joy and gladness. And Jesus brings us both sustenance and joy. In fact, Jesus told us that He was the bread of life and that He was the new wine in the new wine skins. And His first miracle was where? It was at a wedding feast to make lots of wine out of water for this huge wedding celebration, which was a time of great joy. And then at the Last Supper, which became our communion, bread represented His body and wine represented His blood. And lastly, Jesus brought us all these things from Jerusalem, just as Melchizedek brought all these things to Abraham from the same place. So what then are some things about Melchizedek that answer the second question, that show us why Jesus, being like Melchizedek, shows us that Jesus is a superior high priest? Well, first of all, no high priest of the temple was righteous, but Melchizedek was, and Jesus is. Secondly, no high priest of the temple could give anyone peace, but Melchizedek did, and Jesus does. Third, no high priest of the temple could give anyone rest, but Melchizedek did, and Jesus does, just as we saw last time in Hebrews 4. Fourth, no high priest was worthy of being worshipped himself. But Melchizedek was, and Jesus is. And finally, because Abraham worshipped Melchizedek, and this is the most important point to the hearers of this letter when it was first delivered, because Abraham worshipped Melchizedek by giving him a tithe, guess what? That means that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if Melchizedek, who was like Jesus in so many respects, was greater than Abraham. Then guess what else? So is Jesus. That last point would have been of huge significance to the Jewish Christian readers of the book of Hebrews who were tempted to go back to their old faith. I mean, after all, this was a huge thing for them to hear because Abraham was the first Jew. Abraham was the founder of the Jewish faith. So the point is that if Jesus was greater than Abraham, then there is no reason to go back to the old Jewish faith. In fact, it's interesting, Jesus alluded to this Himself in the, in the Gospel of John because He claims there to be greater than Abraham. At the end of John 8, there's a dialogue going on with religious leaders between them and Jesus. And look at John 8.53, which we'll have up there for you on the screen, the question they asked Jesus. It says, they asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? See, they revered Abraham as their father. And then in John 8.58, Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you read the rest of that chapter, you'll see the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, that He was claiming to be greater than Abraham. 
And we see that because they took up stones to stone him. So to a Jewish hearer of this, to hear that Jesus is greater than Abraham would be very, very significant for them and hopefully something that would keep them from going back to their old faith. All right, let's look at uh, Hebrews 5.7. This says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. This verse tells us something very, very important to know about Jesus, and that is that although he was from God and is God, he took on human flesh. For it says there in those first six words, in the days of his flesh. I can't give this the justice it deserves. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, has 20 pages of a sermon just on these six words because the implications are profound, what it means that God would take on human flesh. But let me just share a few. The first implication here is that it was only in that way, by taking on human flesh, that Jesus could become a substitute for us when he died for us. Because as the writer of Hebrews is going to say later in Hebrews 10.4, look at this. This would be shocking to a Jewish mind back then as well, after hundreds of years of doing this. Here's what Hebrews 10.4 says. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You'd be kind of devastated to hear that if that's what your people had been doing for hundreds of years. And the reason that's so, the reason it's impossible for the death of of bulls and goats to take away sins is because it takes the death of a perfect and sinless human being to be our substitute to atone for our sins. The bulls and goats were just a picture of Jesus who was going to come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist identified him when he saw him in John chapter 1. And for a Jewish Christian, you see, to be hanging on then to this old sacrificial system as a means of any type of salvation would be like this. It would be like you or me hanging on to an old cheap imitation Rolex after someone gave us a brand spanking new authentic one. Why would you keep the old fake one? Or it would be like you've lost touch with a loved one, let's say, and, and for years you've been hanging on to a photo you had of them, and you looked at it every night and every morning at your bedside, and then one day they finally showed up at your front door, and instead of walking them in, You shut the door on them and went back and kept looking at the picture. It'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? And that's the point the author is making here. Why would you keep looking at the picture, the shadow, when you've now got the real thing? Now, back in Hebrews 5, 7, there's something else uh, to see. Um, Because in Jesus becoming human flesh, here's something else that this verse tells us that should jump out at us that Jesus also had to do. It says he had to pray to the Father for his own needs, just like we also have to do. But look at how he prayed. Look at how earnestly and fervently he prayed. This verse says that he prayed with loud cries and tears. Can you imagine that? God taking on human flesh and having to pray that way for his own needs? I mean, we could spend an hour just on that, but the question for us brothers and sisters is, do we pray? with such passion as he did? I mean, no wonder his prayers had so much power. Do you realize that if you search your Gospels, prayer is the only thing you will ever find that the disciples asked Jesus how to do? That's really striking when you think of all the things they saw him do. They saw him heal the sick, raise the dead, walk on water, cast out demons, calm the storms, um, make tons of fish and bread out of a, a few little ones, turn 120 gallons of water into wine, on and on and on. All these amazing things they saw him do, yet not once did they ever ask him, Jesus, teach us how to do those things. No, the only thing they said that about was prayer. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And in response to that is where we get the Lord's Prayer. 
So you see, the disciples in their three and a half years with Jesus must have noticed there was something really special about His prayer time with the Father. And they realized if we could just get that right, all the rest of this stuff will happen. <laughs> so they never asked how to do the other stuff. It was just teach us how to pray. Now, verse 7 also tells us that God heard Jesus when He prayed because of His reverence. So you see, brothers and sisters, when we come as Christians in the name of Jesus as our high priest and mediator, guess what? God hears us. That's something no high priest could ever do for us. Now, let's look at verses 8 and 9. These tell us this. Although, referring to Jesus here, he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So verse 8 tells us that Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering. Now, it really ought to strike us that God became a man and suffered. But I want us to look first at this learning obedience part, because this does not mean that Jesus as God was ever lacking in anything or ever had to learn anything because God is complete, all-knowing, and self-sufficient. Rather, what it means is that as God, as He took on human flesh and dwelt amongst us, Jesus had never before experienced the difficulty of remaining completely obedient and holy in the presence of temptation. Because in heaven, where He came from, He had never experienced temptation because there is no sin or temptation there. But he went through that to become this sacrifice for us so that he could identify with us and understand what our struggles are. Now, look at the next great truth in verse 9, which is that because Jesus remained perfectly holy and never sinned despite being tempted, then his death could pay for all of our sins And he could be, as that verse says, the source, this is really important, of our eternal salvation, eternal salvation. You see, the death of a sinner, my own death, can't even pay for my own sins, let alone the sins of anyone else. But Jesus, having remained holy, could by his death pay for all sins, all of our sins, forever. So therefore, as this verse says, the salvation He gives us is eternal. No ordinary high priest could ever give us that. The sacrifice made on Yom Kippur could pay for a person's sins in that dispensation for the past year, but not for all sin for all time. Now, this verse is also a great reminder of our eternal security, meaning that once you have truly received the salvation that Jesus has to offer, You cannot lose it. It's called eternal salvation, not temporary or maybe salvation. Jesus does not offer a partial salvation or a temporary salvation. The salvation that He gives is only eternal. Now, verse 10, very short, it just reminds us again of what we saw earlier. It says, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, it repeats that about Melchizedek by way of emphasis that Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So it must be important if God's got it in here twice in these 10 verses. But for now, as we begin to wrap this up, the inescapable conclusion that God wants us to come to from what we have seen here this morning is that, as the song we love to sing says, once you have decided to follow Jesus, there is no turning back. And specifically, There is no reason to ever want to turn back because what we have in Jesus, as we've just seen, is far, far superior to anything that we had before, whether it was in our sins or in our religions or whatever else we followed before we came to Christ. You see, Jesus came from God to represent us to God. Jesus understands us. He knows what temptation is like, and He was victorious over it. So, He can guide us to victory over it too. And not only that, but as we've seen, 
He prays for us, and God hears his prayers. Like Melchizedek, he is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace, and he gives us both those things, righteousness and peace. And because of all these things, he is greater than any other religious leader, even Abraham, the founder of a great religion. And he is able to give us a complete salvation from sin, which lasts forever. So there is no reason to go back to whatever we followed before Jesus, because whatever it was, it cannot possibly give us these things, and it can't even come close. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, these marvelous truths from your Word. Lord, may they stir our hearts in love for you and devotion for you. Lord, may it cause us to just want to serve you and obey you more as we leave today, in Jesus' name. Now, before the band begins, um, I want to share one more thing, and then we'll lead into communion. Um, One more thing that we need to note here about Melchizedek, which is extremely, extremely important, especially if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Melchizedek here went seeking after Abraham, just like Jesus come seeking after us. We have a God who's not content to leave us where we're at, who designed us to be in relationship with Him and will pursue us until we come into that relationship. Daniel talked about that a couple messages ago, that even in the garden in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and hid themselves, God went after them saying, where are you, Adam? And those words, where are you, Adam, where are you, Eve, echo down through all the pages of Scripture to the day he called Abraham and Abraham got saved, the day he called Moses and Moses got saved, to the day you and I got saved. And we heard him saying, where are you, Dan? Where are you, Ben? Where are you, Susie? Where are you, Kim? Et cetera, et cetera. He pursues us because he wants us to be in that relationship. Melchizedek came to Abraham just like Jesus comes to us. He met Abraham where Abraham was, just like Jesus will meet us where we are. And also when Melchizedek came to Abraham, he came bringing his righteousness and his peace as the king of both, and he came bringing rest and blessings. But when he came to Abraham, Abraham still had to welcome him and invite him to sit down and dine with him. And Abraham still had to receive the righteousness, the peace, the rest, and the blessings that Melchizedek had to offer. And in like manner, Jesus comes to us today. Maybe you've been sensing his presence here this morning, either in this room or as you're listening online. And as we've been talking about him and lifting him up, You see, Jesus comes bringing us the righteousness of God that we must have in order to have fellowship with God, both now and forever and eternity in a place called heaven. And Jesus comes bringing us peace with God by having satisfied on the cross the wrath of God at our sin. And in that way, He brings us rest rest from our own struggles to somehow make ourselves righteous, and rest from trying to solve on our own that problem that every religion has recognized of how to get right with God. Finally, Jesus has blessed us by offering all of this to us as a free gift that we don't have to earn and that we never could earn, frankly. But just as Abraham had to accept Melchizedek and all that he came to bring, we have to do the same thing with Jesus or else we are not saved. So if you're here now or you're listening with us online, we would implore you, resolve in your heart now to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be reconciled to God by having your sins that separate you from Him and His holiness completely removed by Jesus forever, our great high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, That's the end of the message. Uh, We're a little short on staff this weekend, so I'm going to also lead us into communion, uh, which is a great time to do this after what we've just learned. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we think of the bread 
and the wine that Melchizedek brought to Abraham, that gave Abraham rest and sustenance and joy. What a beautiful reminder that is of the presence of Jesus right here in this room and of the bread and the wine that we have before us on these tables. I don't think they had gluten-free bread back then, but as Steve mentioned, we do have some here. And this bread and this wine truly represents what brings us rest and sustenance and joy. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He said that the bread was His body given up for us and that the wine was His blood shed for us for the remission of sins. Now, after what we have just heard, we would never say that what we're about to do at these tables is some kind of religious ritual that can somehow save us. But in a way, just like baptism, our taking of it is an outward demonstration of an inward truth and reality, which is that we have fully accepted the sacrifice of the body and the blood of Jesus to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and that we are not somehow still clinging to our own works or our own sacrifices or our own religious endeavors to somehow help us be righteous in God's sight, but that it is nothing but the blood of Jesus, our great and best high priest, who has done it all. So let me pray and give thanks for the bread and the wine, and then you can come to the tables and then return to your seats and take it while the band plays, and then I'll have a short closing remark before we leave. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that so many years ago in this encounter between Melchizedek and Abraham, you used bread and wine to picture the sustenance and the rest and the peace that you would one day bring us through your son Jesus. Lord, as we take the bread and we take the wine today, Lord, let it remind us of all that he gave up for us, Lord, that to become our great high priest, he had to leave heaven to come to earth. He had to take on human flesh. He had to be tempted. He had to pray for his own needs. He had to learn obedience through something as horrible as suffering. Lord, we thank you for all that you went through to bring us salvation. Lord, may it stir our hearts with joy and love and obedience to you as we celebrate this time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.